Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. and listeners. Welcome to again a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. My name is Rudolf. I am the creator and host of this podcast and I'm talking to you from the outskirts of the lovely city of Vienna. Today is February 16, 2020 and this is episode 7 of season 4. Our guest in this show will be UK-born author Angel Millar, who now lives in New York. He has recently published a new book called The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, and we will be talking mostly about this book, and therefore the name and title of this episode is Initiation. I'm very glad to tell you that since the beginning of this year and the new season, we have once again been able to greatly increase the number of listeners. Thank you all for being with us and helping to achieve that. If it's the first time that you're listening to this show, I wish you a heartly welcome and hope to have you back many more times. You might want to know that you can listen to the Thoth Hermes podcast on many different podcast outlets like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, iHeartRadio and many others. So the choice is really yours. You can also find us on YouTube with a special Thoth Hermes channel there. But know that for the time being, this is an audio-only version as well. If you want to get some additional information, though, about my guests or the topics we discuss, and if you want to give me some feedback, which I would really appreciate, you might want to go on the website of the Thoth Hermes podcast, which is www.thoshermes.com. T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. For this additional information, you will find the show notes and all the necessary links to research further. For communication, you will be able to leave me a voicemail on the website or to use the contact form that we provide there. Of course, there is always the possibility to send me an email on info at thoughtshermes.com and to visit us on Facebook or Twitter. As I have told you several times already, the Thoth Hermes podcast also needs your support. It does cost money to produce the podcast and I would really appreciate you becoming a patron with as little as $2 per episode and limited to three payments per month, that means for $6 per month, you can give us support 
that is indeed really helpful for us. Go on the Patreon website and look for the Thoughts Hermes podcast there. Subscribe if you prefer a one-off donation. You can do so by clicking on the donate button on the Thoughts Hermes website. And there is also a direct link to our Patreon page. So, no excuse there, friends. <laughs> no, seriously, we would really love to have you as one of our patrons. Thank you. Okay, my friends, it's now high time to delve into this episode. You are already used to listening to us? Okay, then you know what comes next. Yes, a piece of music. What I found for you today are three very different pieces of music, different in style and length. Well, actually, the first one that we're going to hear would be much longer than what we will hear. You all probably know that music from the very well-known Mickey Mouse movie, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, which in fact itself is an excerpt from Fantasia. The original music for The Sorcerer's Apprentice is by French composer Paul Ducat. The performance of the original full score lasts almost 15 minutes and already in Fantasia it was shortened a bit. But for today I found a very original and interesting classical orchestral version of this piece, which is exactly six minutes of length and I thought that would be a perfect match for our show today. Okay, so we're going to hear that six-minute highlight version of Paul Ducasse, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, first. The piece has, as you probably know, been inspired by a poem of German poet Goethe. And what he, Goethe, has to say in that poem, everybody who wants to become a magician should really consider. Let's listen together to the German orchestra, the Bamberger Sinfoniker, and their version of The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Thank you. 
Sorcerer's Apprentice by Paul Ducat, 
performed in a special six-minute version by the Bamberger Symphonica. Angel Millar has already been on this show once in November 17. At the time, we were also talking about his personal background and his projects and thoughts that he shared with us then. Only two other people have so far reappeared a second time on this podcast. One was Thomas Carlson and the other Tobias Churton. And now it's Angel's return on the show. If either you like what you will hear today and want to know more about Angel, or maybe if you want to prepare for today's talk before listening to it, go to Season 2, Episode 1, which should be available on most of the podcast providers that have us in their program, and listen to our talk there. Of course, that episode is also available on the Thoth Hermes website. The immediate reason for our talk today is the release of Angel's new book, The Three Stages of Initiatic Spirituality, which has only been released on February 11, so very few days before this show. Angel is presenting to us a path through spiritual development that has been inspired by three archetypes, the craftsman, the warrior and the magician. Angel reveals to us how do these archetypes represent the three successive stages of spiritual growth in the life of an individual. Together we will explore in this interview those stages and how Angel is interpreting them. Angel Millar is a well-known lecturer on initiation, esotericism and on Freemasonry. Using three archetypes in those three steps, of course, reminds us a little bit of Freemasonry. And we also discussed that question in the beginning. But very quickly, we go much further than that into a very universal interpretation of angels' thoughts. After a little more than 30 minutes into the interview, I will come back to you with a little musical break. But for now... Let us welcome Angel Millar. Here comes the interview. It is a great pleasure for me to welcome here on the Thos Hermes podcast today somebody who already once was a guest on one of those shows. And we are saying welcome to Angel Minar from his New York. <clears throat> and um, Angel, hello. You have been with us in November 2017, believe it or not. It's wow. been that, that long. It sounds like yeah. it was yesterday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It, it feels like uh, about a year ago, but I guess it's been a lot longer. But yeah. It's and good I, to be back. I, I, thank you. Well, good to have you. And I need to mention that once again here now that you are the wonderful artist who also designed the backgrounds and the types <laughs> and typos and the logos of the website of Thoughts Hermes in, right. uh, in one of your other lives. You did that. Uh, yeah. And, 
<laughs> Thank you once again. I was really grateful for that. And it's it still looks stunning and everybody likes it. So thank you yeah. once again. Great. Oh, you're most welcome. I'm glad I could help when you were setting up the podcast. Exactly. That yeah. was You actually were starting season two back mm. then. And today we are now in the middle of season four already. Oh, and wow. well, before we delve into what brought us together, actually, which is your yeah. new book, which has just a very few days. And I'm very proud that we are out uh, only five days after your book has been released and yeah. your book's the three stages of initiatic spirituality but yep. before we go into that angel let let us know what has happened over the last two and a half years how has your occult and esoteric <laughs> life evolved and what, what's has happened there um yes so obviously a lot of time has been dedicated to uh uh, editing the book and writing the book writing other books uh, which will come out probably in a few years but uh, in terms of my own um, practices uh, I'm still involved with martial arts and Freemasonry and I have my own uh, schedule of meditation and uh, chakra meditation and various other things as well so and you're also a, a speaker who is oh yes demanded <laughs> quite quite a bit around the US yeah you? yeah especially over the last couple couple of years uh, it's been really great I've, I've been able to uh, visit quite a lot of u.s states uh, i've been to los angeles massachusetts a few times uh utah uh, uh i've been to dallas and uh, some other places as well so it's, it's been very nice and uh, it's great to see different parts of the u.s all of which are very different actually absolutely and probably yeah. also even in their masonic practices i think they are quite different from here. yeah that's right yeah and um uh, new jersey is right next to new york and uh, even i've been to a couple of lodges in new jersey and the practices are actually really quite different i was uh, very surprised actually mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. do yeah. you see in in terms of practice and in terms of the occult interests let's put it that way yeah do you see uh clear development over the last two and a half years has that evolved in a certain direction or how you do see that yeah so i would say that freemasonry has changed actually very dramatically over the last three years and um, i think there was always an interest in uh, the esoteric and symbolism and spirituality but freemasons um you know a few years ago or they joined say 20 10 20 30 40 years ago uh, joined uh, when you know a lot of guys um uh, were more interested in just getting together with buddies and stuff like that. And, uh, and knife masonry. Uh, right, right, <laughs> right. And I think the guys that stuck around were the ones who were interested in, you know, symbolism and mythology and so on. But um, because of that atmosphere, they never felt free to express their interest in that very weirdly. But um, over the last three years, uh, it's really, really uh, become a big focus. Uh, the different Masonic cons or conventions have been held all over the country. Now there's an esoteric con, which is run by Freemasons for Freemasons, but focusing more on the esoteric and uh, maybe a little bit on the supernatural. And... Um, and that really has, uh, yeah, really helped to shift the focus towards mm -hmm. Masonic education, spirituality, myth, and um, you know related subjects like Kabbalah or the world of the occult, the Golden Dawn, and this kind of thing. So that's really become a big focus. And uh, at the same time, uh, over the last few years, I, uh, I think now you know the guys that are, that are joining are. are 
most of them are interested in, you know, as I say, symbolism, mythology, mm. uh, rituals, um, spirituality, uh, mysteries, and so on and so mm. forth. And, you know, they might be um, a little rough around there at the edges with their understanding of these things, but that's mm. kind of to be expected. But that's definitely much more of the focus, or at the very least, the focus would be, you know, self-improvement or something like that. So. And, and even the supernatural you mentioned. So that's yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be speaking at EsotericCon this year, and I'm going to give a little bit of an introduction to sort of inner energy and inner alchemy. I think so. Mm -hmm. So that would be quite different for that that world. Great. And yeah. <laughs> on, on the other hand, do you think that this is ref a reflection of what happens in the world in general, or is it particular to that part of, of, of the society who, who is more attracted to masonry? Uh, or is that, is that new interest and even practice in the occult arts, as I like to uh, call them? Is, yeah. that the more, is that the common, a common issue? Um, you know, I don't know. I mean, it must reflect something that's going on in society. But um, yeah, I, I don't know why there is such a big change. I mean, uh, maybe because Freemasonry itself is changing and being much more open about this interest. And maybe that's helping to attract uh, guys with, with, with like, like, uh, like minds. Mm -hmm. but, um, but certainly, you know, if you read... Uh, transactions from the AQC, which was the, the earliest Masonic research lodge, uh, which started in the 1890s. Uh, if you read the uh, transactions of the early AQC years, um, you know, there you find a lot about Rosicrucianism, you know, Druidry, all kinds of things. And it definitely was a focus. And, um, uh, you know, the Societas Rosicruciana, uh, sure. most, most famously uh, McGregor Mathers and uh, uh, William uh, uh, Westcott. Westcott. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that, that was a time when Mathers was still amazing. So maybe that's also yeah. helped. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 No, sure. Well, um, because, I mean, of course, we were now in this introduction speaking uh, quite a bit about Freemasonry, but, um, and when we read the title of your new book, The Three Stages yeah. of Initiatic Spirituality, of course, to those of us who know about Masonry or who are Masons, um, we might think immediately of that right. triad as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but when I read your book, but exactly when I read your book um, very quickly, and I'm glad it is the case, actually, I mean, yeah. very positively, uh, very quickly, you realize that this book does not talk about masonry. It talks about yeah. initiatic spirituality, which is something much more than, than Freemasonry. Yeah, and, that's right. And so my first question that I have about this book, before we delve a bit into how you put the sections together and how, how it, uh, what you want to say with it. Um, could you give us your definition of initiation? What, what does initiation as such as a word, as a fact, yeah. of course, what does that mean to you? Yeah. Well, as you know, um, initiation means to begin, but mm. within the world of the esoteric or spirituality, uh, it means really to begin on a path of uh, learning and studying and practicing certain uh, uh, techniques or studying certain ideas and uh, philosophical ideas and traditions that would unveil, uh, let's say, unveil the reality of, of 
divinity and unveil the sort of underlying uh, divine nature of the world. Right. And um, for the individual who, who, who gets initiated, mostly yeah. the initiation as such is linked to a, to an event, to a, a yes. moment, right? A That's moment right. in time. At the same <laughs> time, it's the beginning of a path. So yeah. how do you marry those two ideas? Yeah. You mean uh, the ideas of a path and an event? Exactly. I yeah. mean, is, is, is the initiation really just that that day when you first get right. the handshake or, mm. or whatever? Mm. Uh, or or is it more? It's definitely more. So the, the event that you're talking about typically is some kind of a ritual, right? Some kind right. of ceremonial initiation. And mm. obviously, uh, this is a, a big thing in Freemasonry, but... But, uh, you know, as well, the, the, the Golden Dawn, the, the Ordo Templi Orientis, Wicca, modern oh, sure, dru yeah. Druidry, yeah. pretty much everything um, in esoteric in the modern world, mm -hmm. uh, within the modern, let's say, Western esoteric tradition, has some yeah. kind of initiatic ritual and often certain uh, levels of ritual, certain degrees. Um, so yeah, the the ritual sort of sets you off on the path by giving you certain things to think about and contemplate and maybe certain things to do and it, maybe in a more occult order that might be practicing certain uh, meditational techniques or certain rituals by yourself uh, within a Masonic context that might be uh, refining your behavior on a day-to-day -day basis. And then you would have to keep practicing these, thinking about it, uh, reflecting on uh, the nature of the divine as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So it, yeah, so it's a process. It's the birth of yeah. something, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, that I think brings us right into the middle of what uh, what you're talking here. And <laughs> already when I, I have the book here in front of me and when I see the title, the, 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 yeah. the, the picture on the cover, I know this is not done by the artists who write the book. Yeah. Normally, I don't know if, no. if, it ha if you happen to have done I that. I didn't do it. <laughs> but it's it's an interesting approach yeah. because we have this nine uh, um, the, the seven edged star sorry yeah um, here then we have the human being in the middle in the position of what we know from the pentagram in, with the stretched arms yeah. and open legs and then we have as the three around the three alchemical symbols of sulfur mercury and salt yeah and so this is a very complex symbol uh, yeah. that you have here on the cover yeah. um how does that symbol how do you interpret the symbol in relation to what then comes in the book yeah well i guess the artist actually interpreted the book and made that uh, sort of interpretation uh visually but um yeah so uh, and i'll just mention that the subtitle of the book is craftsman warrior magician right uh, so those are the three archetypal vocations that i explore in uh, in different ways but um one thing I, I relate the three alchemical elements of sulfur salt and mercury to the to those uh, vocations mm -hmm. but um yeah that's right the the cover is uh, is very intriguing and i, I like it and there seems to be the some sort of radiating energy sort of going into the figure and um i mean yeah interpreting the the cover it seems to be that uh, 
the figure is drawing on the energy of the three alchemical elements or mm. or the craftsman warrior and the magician and becoming in, empowered and maybe transforming in some way. I, I like the picture very much. It's yeah. like, almost like a, a meditative uh, picture yeah. that you can use for meditation. That's it's right, really, that's right. It's, yeah. it's highly interesting. Yeah, I okay, like so you, you just said that uh, the three stages, as you call them, yeah. are in your um, denomination, craftsman, yeah. warrior, magician. Yeah. Should we maybe, if that's all right for you, before we go and a little bit um, observe and discuss the three stages, uh, would you like to explain to us um, what made you choose those names, those archetypes, as you just sure, said? Sure, sure. How, how, you, how you position them into the development? Yeah, well, I don't feel that I really chose them. Um, I feel it had to be those three. And, uh, and that's because there is a historical precedent for it being those three. Okay. And that is um, uh, the, the philologist uh, Georges uh, Dumasil mm-hmm. um, uh, claimed during the 20th century that Indo-European society uh, right. was, uh, in the ancient period, obviously, it was uh, each society was divided into the craftsman, warrior, and a magician. The magician meaning, let's say, could range from the shaman all the way through to like village elder or spiritual guide, let's say. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's how he believed that these societies were divided. And I think that's correct. But I think that you can also find essentially that division pretty much in all um, you know, ancient uh, tribal uh tribal um, societies societies yeah. yeah that's right so you know and and, and um uh, another historian of uh, indo-european society suggested that that um that these three uh vocations uh, may have formed stages in a person's life and um you know, so as a youth, uh, someone would become a craftsman and maybe that would be working in the fields, for example, or maybe that would be helping parents in a you know, blacksmith's forge or something like that. Mm. And, um, you know, we forget that, yeah, because people, uh, you know, 100 years ago and certainly a thousand years ago didn't go to school for 16, 18, 20 years. Uh, they were, they were uh, beginning work when they were five or six. Uh, helping their parents, uh, maybe in in the fields or in the forge or something like that, and then when their body got stronger and they could be a little bit more independent, w- would become a sort of full worker, and um, so they, so they would start out their lives as a craftsperson, and then when their body was stronger, become a warrior, and then when their body um, became too aged for you know hunting, fighting, and so on, mm-hmm. uh, would become a magician or an elder or a spiritual guide of of, uh, of the uh, tribe, and um, would be one of the people who knew the rituals and knew the uh, myths and legends and the ways of that society. Right. Yeah. Which is interesting that um, it seems to us today mm. that. Um, experience does lead more to craftsman than to warrior but uh, visibly in this archetypal thought or societies this was seen exactly the other way around um to do yeah so right. it seems that that experience that you make as a craftsman yeah. is not seen nowadays as something that is being used for the warrior so maybe that depends mm. how you define warrior doesn't it 
Yeah, it does. And, uh, you know, those, those societies that we've been talking about, you know, ancient societies were more holistic, whereas ours is much more atomized. And sure. uh, the, the warrior, craftsman and uh, magician in our society is very, very unbalanced. So, you know, although, you know, it's true in, in some Western societies, though, fewer and fewer, I would think, um, you know, there is still a military draft for a year or two. But uh, most countries don't have that. The U.S. doesn't have it and Britain doesn't yeah. have it, for example. But um, I think w what we do see is an abundance of the, the intellect and an emphasis on the intellect. And um, so the magician it sort of dominates, really. But the problem is with the people who are the intellectuals of society uh, is that they're essentially out of balance because they haven't gone through any kind of warrior path or, or any kind of crafts path. It's all intellect. There's nothing really physical that they can manifest and um, you know I think the problem with that is when um, when you're not in contact with the body and you you don't have a practice um, there's this, such an overemphasis on the uh, on the intellectual that the reality itself feels like something you can mold when actually you have to learn from reality itself and not the other way around. Right. And um, another problem is, you know, aggression doesn't go away if you don't exercise it in a healthy way. It comes out through the intellect. And of course, um, we can see that on Twitter where, you know, people exist without bodies, as it were, <laughs> but uh, do nothing but uh, or do nothing but attack each other all day long. The aggression is still there, but it comes out mentally and it's potentially even worse than just a, you know, a physical fight somewhere, which, you know, might be over yeah. in five minutes. So. But you will also, we'll also find your physical limits in the physical fight very quickly, probably. Yeah, yeah, that's and right. That will, will probably put to your, your eagerness a little bit in restraints. Yeah, yeah, usually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, then let's start with the first of those stages. Right. I maybe you want to say something in general before before I ask my first question because it's already a bit particular. You want to 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 bit describe how this first stage, how you see it, and what you what you think about it. Okay, well that's your first question, I guess. Right? No, yeah, that was my first question, but the other one, the second question, will be a bit more okay. in depth. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, Yeah, well, let's uh, let's just tackle the issue of well, if someone is spiritual, why would they want to buy a book on the craftsman and the warrior? Why not just on the magician? Mm -hmm. And um, and that is, you know, I'm not exploring, um, say, the techniques of art and crafts or techniques of uh, self-defense. Uh, in, in each of these archetypal vocations that I explore, I'm looking at the rituals, mythology, uh, symbols, and uh, spiritual practices of each. So the, so the rituals, mythology, symbols, spiritual practices of the craftsman, for example, and of mm -hmm. the warrior. And... Um, The craftsman, it's important, you know, we've already been talking about Freemasonry and, um, you know, whether people like to acknowledge this or not, Freemasonry has an, had an enormous influence on the Western esoteric tradition. That's you know, right. re really almost, uh, almost every modern um, esoteric movement out there from the Golden Dawn, even Wicca, uh, has all been influenced to a, a greater or a lesser degree by Freemasonry. Mm. And of course, that's the case because uh, Freemasonry has still has millions of members worldwide. And uh, whereas, 
you know, the OTO probably has, you know, a thousand members worldwide, I'm guessing, but I don't think it's much more than that. So mm. it's minuscule in comparison. And the main people who uh, shape these uh, these other rites and rituals and, and societies uh, were either very often connected to Freemasons or were themselves Freemasons you know, uh, of one sort or another, including, you know, Alistair Crowley. But um, the, so the... So the, uh, the so the symbolism of the craftsman is, is important from that perspective alone, but uh, you know if you look back in um, uh, into antiquity, you find, for example, that the blacksmith wasn't just a blacksmith; he also was uh, served as a kind of uh, priest or initiator, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, he he was the master of fire, uh, just as the the magician was the master of fire who could make uh, steam come from his body, as in the Tibetan uh, lamas do today. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the warrior was the master of fire of the of the heat of battle. Uh, so they had this in connection, but um, but the craftsman had this initiatic role. So in the, the so the blacksmith was an initiator. He knew the secrets of metal and the the, the melding of metal and forging weapons, etc., mm-hmm. which already gave gave him a sort of semi divine status. And you find the figure of the blacksmith reflected, for example, in the the uh, mythological figure of uh, Thor. Uh, Thor has a has a red beard. Sparks come out of his beard. Uh, when he gets angry, uh, his hammer actually glows red hot, which is very, very suggestive of it being a blacksmith's hammer. Mm-hmm. So he needs a special gauntlet to uh, grip the hammer. And there's also a piece of uh, whetstone embedded in his forehead. And whetstone is used to uh, create sparks, of course, to start a fire. Right. And uh, so you see these sort of reflections of the craftsman in uh, in different ways, in different mythologies. And um, the the... Platonist uh, Iamblichus uh, even mm-hmm. described the monad or what we would call God as being uh, as being the craftsman, and then fast forward to Freemasonry, mm-hmm. um, which you know again has a three at least a three hundred year uh, history of it being really as we understand it today, plus another at least another three hundred years of a uh, prehistory where there was a strange mythology connected to the stonemasons and some. Uh, mm-hmm. Symbolism and some rituals and so on, uh, which Freemasonry absorbed. But you know, today still uh, Freemasonry um, refers to God or the Creator or the Divine as the Great Architect or as the Grand Geometrician. Right. So you know, we have all this symbolism of the Craftsman, the God as a Craftsman, the Craftsman uh, being embodied in in different gods or mythological figures, and then even today with uh, Freemasonry, uh, God. Is this great architect or geometrician, and all of the secrets of Freemasonry are taught through the um, through the, through uh, different uh, builders and architectural uh, tools, uh, which have been made into symbols. So the square encompasses obviously the the ruler and uh, the trowel, hammer, and so on. Mm. Do you do you have an explanation why it was? 
say stone masonry and not um, for example the blacksmith why that yeah. very craft of the stone mason yeah. has become so central in the initiatic yeah. world yeah so if we went back maybe more than a thousand years ago probably the blacksmith would be more likely to have that sort of central right. place um, and obviously uh, later on you have the emergence of alchemy which is sort of like um, not a it's more of a sort of modern um, uh, interpretation of the blacksmith is sort of a, a re a rehabilitation of the blacksmith within a sort of hermetic Christian uh, type world. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, we, we've uh, Western countries were Christian for about a thousand years, maybe a right. bit more. And of course, we still are in many cases, but it's uh, definitely um, uh, it's not 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 as uh, powerful as it once was, mm -hmm. you know, when Britain, for example, everyone would have been a Christian at one point, pretty much. Sure. Sure. Uh, you couldn't get it, you couldn't not be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, well, you know, why stonemasonry? Well, I think it's, you know, it's historical really that um, the stonemasons became important because they were employed by the church to, to build cathedrals and churches. Right. And, you know, a cathedral could take two generations or more to, uh, to actually be erected. So it was, it was a lifetime job. And it was, uh, you know, the most important thing really that was being created was this enormous uh, buildings, uh, the likes of which uh, nothing had ever been seen like that. And they must have been absolutely astounding to look at from the perspective of somebody who had never seen a building like that before. Mm -hmm. You know, people come to New York and marvel at these like 100 plus story buildings. But um, imagine seeing an enormous building when you, you really had seen only like tiny wooden houses wooden before. Houses. Yeah, 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 there would be nothing to compare it to. It wouldn't be, oh, that's like another building I've seen, but five times as big, you just, it would be unimaginable for many people. Sure. Yeah. Do you think the fact that um, as most of the buildings at the time were made of wood, as you just yeah. said, and that through that, the masons also had to travel and yeah. in order to find enough work, A, right. and also to learn from others to, yeah. to erect those buildings. Do you think that this, this part has also its role, why it became the stonemason who, who was a bit the archetypal craftsman? Um, well, uh, in, the, in the initiating mm, world, of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it is largely historical that it, that it became uh, the craft of the greatest prestige and the closest one to the church. But, of course, mm -hmm. uh, part of that prestige uh, was that, yes, you know, to, to really understand architecture and geometry, um, you had to have a, a very high level level of intellect, uh, whereas maybe another craft you, you would not need quite as uh, as developed an intellect or quite as developed a study of your skill, such as weaving. And weaving, you know, weaving is perfectly good, and I'm not knocking it at all. It's you know a wonderful thing, no, sure, but sure. but it takes a certain amount of study to produce a tapestry and another to produce a building that isn't going to fall down and kill people, especially mm -hmm. when, when you're doing, um, uh, making, you know, domed roofs and this kind of thing, which is, you know, incredibly complicated. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so it did, it did obviously require travel and it did require a lot of study and therefore it, it undoubtedly introduced all kinds of other ideas and symbolic ideas into the building as well. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
to maybe round up the question yeah. because uh, of the craftsman, I mean, um, uh, the second chapter in all those three main parts is yeah. uh, related in your book to a certain type of initiation. I'm going to come back to those yeah. others later on, but the yeah. second chapter in the first part about the craftsman is called yeah. mnemonic initiation. That's right. And, and the first sentence <laughs> strikes me because yeah. it says at its most basic level, initiation is involved with memory now yeah. you wouldn't think or i wouldn't have thought about it like that in the yeah. first place and i also see that emergence of mnemonic techniques mm. in in initiation yeah. over the last five or ten years suddenly you speak about that again of course because it's an old tradition yeah um, so can you expand on that a little bit sure so um yeah, so to, to just mention a technique we've just been talking about, uh, architecture. So mm. one um, one uh, technique, I believe it's actually from ancient Greece and Rome, but it was also mm. used during the Renaissance period as well, and maybe before that, uh, of memory. And that was you would mentally uh, construct an image of a building um, and then you would locate different ideas, uh, different parts of the building, and you could mentally walk through the building and uh, and remember each of the things that you had to remember. So you, it would enable you to have a much uh, greater capacity to remember things. So, mm -hmm. so for example, if you were giving a 30-minute speech, you could, you could place each of the parts of the speech at different points in the building, you know, the door, um, one room, another room, uh, maybe around the room and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could walk through your speech mentally and each prop would remind you of what you had to say. Mm -hmm. So that's one technique of memory, but, um, and, and there are mnemonic devices in, uh, in, in, uh, in initiation, so in Freemasonry, you have the tracing board, which is a painting which has the symbols of, of the of the degree painted on it, and that helps the person giving the lecture and the and the initiate hearing the lecture to remember the, the symbols and to remember what's being taught. But um, beyond that, it's not just the memory of uh, certain things; uh, it's the the memory of of the spiritual and the divine. Um, which maybe people have not kind of come in contact with at all. And you find uh, references to memory in a lot of spiritual and religious traditions. So Jesus, of course, you know, uh, um, broke bread and um, shared wine saying, eat and drink, you know, of this in remembrance of me and, and uh in Sufism, zikr is the main practice. Uh, zikr means remembrance. It's the remembrance of Allah. And in, um, in Norse uh, mythology as well, you have uh, the god Odin with his two ravens, Yugin and Munin, or mind and memory. And um, in, in one episode in, in Norse mythology, um, Odin sacrifices one of his eyes and throws it into the well of Mimir, or the mm -hmm. well of the rememberer. So, you know, one of his eyes is literally peering into to this well of uh, sort of archetypal memory, as it were. And um, that's very much the initiatic experience. Um, uh, in, let me just say this, uh, in Hinduism, uh, or Sanatana Dharma, as it's more properly called, um, there's this idea of the yugas or the aeons or the ages. Or the akasha, isn't it? 
Uh, no, that's something else. Something else okay. Yeah. So the yugas, uh, these are ages and there are the, mm. the four great ages. Uh, you mean the Kali Yuga? Yeah, that's right. Now, right. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So it begins with the Sattva Yuga, which we might call the golden age. Everything is in harmony. Right. Society is in harmony. Uh, decent people are at the head of uh, society. The family is coherent and so on. We're in harmony with nature. And then it declines through these other yugas and you end up with the Kali Yuga or the Dark Age. And uh, in that age, which we are, uh, according to many people which we're in today, um, in that age of the Kali Yuga, the family will be broken apart. Corrupt people will be elected to power or will be given power or will seize power and men will be respected for their money uh, men and women will get together on the basis of sexual attraction alone there will be mistrust between uh, different people and so on and so forth mm. and um this uh, this uh, this idea of a decline you find it elsewhere so for example in uh, um we mentioned in norse mythology in the norse the final era is this wolf time when again you find that brothers will be fighting brothers there will be treachery and uh, chaos and then finally it will end in this war between the gods and their enemies and there will be total destruction and then something will come again after that which will be a new golden age as it were mm -hmm. but the uh, terms golden age and iron age derive from uh, the poet greek ancient greek poet hesiod right and uh, he said that the gods created this golden race of people and uh, again this is the golden age they have ha they have a uh, healthy uh, bodies they live a long time you know, free of sickness they're in harmony with nature and each other and are peaceful. Then there's a silver race, which is slightly worse than a, than a bronze race, which is worse. And then finally, you end up with the, uh, the, the iron race and they're sort of warlike and um, uh, sort of vengeful and, and uh, in disharmonious and, and chaotic. And again, mm -hmm. that, would, that would relate back to the, um, the Kali Yuga. Well, yeah. in, in regards to memory, uh, the idea of um, of the initiation of memory is that we may be in the Kali Yuga this time of uh, of uh, chaos and mistrust and corruption and so on and, and so forth and of rampant materialism, but by going through the initiatic ritual by being present in the initiatic ritual, uh, we have this sort of uh, archetypal memory. We, we remember again what it is to be in the golden age where everything is as it should be, or we're given a glimpse of the golden age. So we, we can remember a sense of what came before. And so the initiate is reorientated away from the things of the world towards the divine, uh, the spiritual, the supernatural, uh, whatever might be underlying the world, the supernatural nature of the world itself. Right. Yeah. Right. So that's what we want to remember really. And, mm -hmm. and there are other things which, which might be related to that. So Crowley talked about the magical memory, uh, which pertained to reincarnation and so on. 
Right. So this is much more than a technique or a tool. Yeah. It's more, it's, it's more content of initiation in this first part, right? Yeah. So I would say that there are two aspects. And one aspect is that the use of mnemonic tools to remember spe specific things. It's a technique of, of learning mm -hmm. and of conveying uh, what needs to be conveyed uh, to the initiate. And that's what it is at the most basic level. Um, but then uh, the real... Uh, memory is about remembering this golden age, remembering this um, this time that is outside of the Kali Yuga, outside of the, the material, outside of uh, the, the chaos of, of modernity. And again, you know, coming back to Jesus, and I'm not a Christian, uh, I think probably everyone guessed that. But, um, you know, still, you know, this idea that, you know, eat and drink this bread in remembrance of me, it's this it's not just a remembrance of a of a, of a historical event it's the remembrance of of the supernatural of what transcends the material so you're remembering something that is beyond this world and right. um, and i say that the uh, the initiatic ritual uh, and we don't have to use the word God, you know, some people who are, say Wiccans might say goddess or whatever, but let's just, yeah, you, yeah, let's just yeah. use the term God for now because it's universal. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I say that the, the, the initiatic ritual is what man and God remember together. Both are remembering this, this world of, uh, of the golden age and uh it's, right. it's through this remembering and the remembering together that the uh, initiate is slowly put on the path of uh, of transformation angel millar and his very interesting thoughts on initiation and the first archetype the craftsman i promised to you three very different types of music well, sounds logic when we speak about three archetypes of initiation. But the order I took for the musical pieces does not quite follow the order of the archetypes in Ainsley's book. We started off before the interview with the magician or the sorcerer. Or rather, with his apprentice, to be exact. This time, the musical piece we're going to hear is called Initiation. It is a lovely mix of acoustic guitar and electronics by an artist called Ravarand, who composed and arranged this piece. Let me give you a short poem who inspired him to that music. High on the windswept hilltop, when a tired sun lights the western sky, they stand in circular formations floating robes of crystal white. A child standing in the center, eyes reflect the dancing flame. Nymphs and demons haunt the fire, laughing in their endless game. Initiation by Ravrand.
Initiation by Ravaran. Let us now return to the second part of the interview with author, lecturer, esotericist, Freemason and you name it, Angel Millar. Now we are obviously going to talk first about the warrior archetype and then towards the end about the magician. If you want more information about the book that we are discussing and also want to know how to find Angel and his website, please go to the Thoth Hermes homepage and check out the show notes. Immediately after the interview, you will hear our third piece of music for today, which is called Warrior. This is a piece of wonderfully epic sound with a little Celtic background, written and performed by Philip Lakowitz. But first, let me go back to New York and continue my conversation with Angel Millar. Let's move on. Let's move on to the sure. question of the warrior now. The warrior. The warrior, yes. <laughs> well, here again, maybe you started off because you might want to give us yeah. a... The, well, definition is a strange word, but you know what yeah. I mean, uh, the kind of the overview of that part, the second archetype. Sure. So, you know, uh, again, so let's say the question is why the warrior, you know, besides the fact that it's part of this triad of, of, of ancient societies. But, um, well, uh, the warrior has its own spirituality and of course has affected uh, our own understanding of spirituality as well so in Christianity you have this idea of the war in heaven uh, I mentioned uh, you know a few moments ago that uh, in Norse mythology you have this conception of the, this battle at the end of time between the gods and the enemies of the gods mm -hmm. and uh, and of course you have this conception of the hero as well mm -hmm. this this figure who's somewhere between uh, ordinary man and the gods and the gods often interfere with uh, the world to make sure that the hero uh, succeeds on his quest mm -hmm. uh, so he's somewhere between man and the divine and um and, uh, you know, uh, most famously, perhaps, and maybe most controversially, uh, you have this this um, conception in, in Islam of, uh, of, uh, of al-Jihad, al-Akbar, or the, uh, the, great, uh, the great war, the great struggle, which is what with oneself. Um, so the physical fighting an enemy on the battlefield is the lesser jihad, and then you have the greater jihad or the greater right. struggle. And so this is very much a part of Islam as well. And there's um, uh, there is a, a, a Islamic chivalry, or it's called futuwa. And uh, just as you have Christian chivalry as well, so you have this elevation of the warrior as, as something that's more than a, a pawn in a war or fighting that he is a he is attempting a kind of spiritual life in this harsh conditions mm -hmm. and uh, again you know I, I really think that this is an episode worth mentioning that in the Bhagavad Gita which is probably uh, the best known of all of the the Hindu holy texts mm -hmm. in the Bhagavad Gita uh, the Godhead Krishna 
is on the battlefield with his disciple Arjuna and they look across uh, the battlefield and they see uh, the enemy army is arrayed and uh, Arjuna's cousins and uncles are on the opposing side and, and he says to Krishna, uh, the Godhead, he says that he doesn't want to fight because he's going to have to kill members of his own family and he doesn't want to kill anyone. And, um, and Krishna, far from saying killing is wrong and let's just be peaceful and meditate. Krishna says, no, you must kill. You, and he says, when you go into battle and kill the enemy, uh, don't, don't despair because it will be me cutting it, cutting them down. You are just my agent. And it's at this moment, which is a fairly horrific thing, I think, especially for Westerners, we have this conception mm -hmm. of spirituality as being very Jesus-like and peaceful. Um, but it's it's there on the battlefield that Krishna reveals his uh, cosmic form. It's not in a temple. It's not in a, a place of peace and love, a river somewhere, a, a sunny day, a field. It's on the mm. battlefield that he reveals his cosmic form and he has millions of heads and millions of arms and millions of legs. And within his torso, uh, millions and millions of uh, creatures are revolving and all, everything is moving within him, the planets, and one eye is the sun and the other eye is the moon. He's the whole of existence, as it were, as a kind of consciousness. But it's uh, it's not a coincidence or a quirk that he chooses to reveal on the battlefield. Uh, the warrior is another type of spiritual being who wrestles with himself and wrestles with an enemy. And uh, of course, he wrestles with an enemy because now we're in the, the Kali Yuga, the Iron Age, the age of corruption and chaos. Uh, so he, in a sense, is almost a kind of priest of the uh, of the age of, of darkness and chaos. Mm -hmm. the, the shaman, um, let's say at a time of uh, when we're more still more connected to nature, the shaman might have to control spirits. And if he's healing uh, someone who has a sickness, he will cast out the spirit from that body, the spirit of sickness. So he's doing a kind of magical battle with the these entities and the warrior is doing it on a more physical level the enemy is, right. has come so now he has to uh, deal with the enemy and cast out the enemy in this physical way but it's also an in internal struggle for him there's the war on the battlefield there's the war in heaven and there's a war within himself so in the in the most in most of the occult systems that I know, um, the aspect of the warrior and the fight, and you do the same here, yeah. is coming already at the higher level. It's not something that you are hearing in texts or being explained or in rituals yeah. at a very early stage or a lower degree, right? It, it, because probably you need to understand a few things about yourself first before you can understand what fight in yeah. the real uh, in the hyphen real way means right uh, yeah. you see it like that yeah it's interesting that you should say that in the initiatic systems you know that the warrior comes after some kind of foundational um uh instruction it's not the it's not the basic level and i don't know if you're referring to freemasonry but um, also yeah yeah not 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 only yeah no of course not no but you know and there you do have 
the the craftsman in the craft lodge and then you have the sort of knights templar degree or these other knightly degrees which come later mm. on so you have this mm. introduction of the warrior as well so so right. that that is true yeah and um you know but it comes mm. after after perfection even yeah. within the higher degrees the the aspect of the knight or the warrior mm. only comes once the perfection degrees are coming to their end, right? Right, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Somatic initiation, you call it in, yeah. in, in that part. Once again, could you explain that a bit more? Yeah, so, soma so somatic just means the body and mm -hmm. um, mnemonic, we're talking about mnemonic initiation, that means memory. So memory, that's right. for the craftsman, then for the warrior, it's somatic initiation, the initiation of the body. And um, there are different ways in which the uh, the body becomes a part of the initiation. And um, let's just take the uh, physical body. And um if you look at something like the, the Shaolin temple where monks are practicing Kung Fu every day, they dress the same. They're all wearing the same monk's robe and we like that and uh, as Westerners. But the other thing that they're doing is they're making their body uniform. They're, the, all of their bodies look the same. So one is in... Uh, 300 pounds and the other one 90 pounds are all probably around the same sort of uh, build. They're all probably around about the same sort of weight or aspiring to be. And they're building their body to become a sort of archetypal warrior monk, as it were. And mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's and that's really uh, something that's not really spoken about, but that really is the aim in these different traditions. Uh, you're you're making your body into this archetypal warrior body it's a, it in itself is it's a tool but it's also a uniform so that's one way but maybe for your listeners and i go into this um maybe a more important way is this sort of inner alchemical way in which uh the warrior is trying to generate inner energy or what in kung fu and uh taoist inner energy in alchemy would be called um, uh, chi uh, and in mm. Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma would be called prana. This subtle energy that is alleged to pervade the entire universe and is within our body and can be cultivated. And uh, in Taoist inner alchemy, uh, this chi is cultivated in the body um, near the uh, lower dantian, which is in the belly as it were. And eventually it's, it rises up to the top of the head and it becomes what's called a spirit fetus. And then this, this, uh, this spirit emerges out of the top of the head and goes back to the uh, primordial Tao. So it's this idea of creating this uh, body which can become immortal and uh, becomes immortal with, it, with your consciousness, as it were. And um, so that's one one uh, practice for this inner energy. In the uh, martial arts, I might be uh, cultivating inner energy for health in the body. Mm -hmm. um, for some people, it might be to be able to project this energy beyond the body to perform some kind of healing on other people or something like that. Uh, but that's a, that's a part of what I call the somatic initiation. Of mm -hmm. what you cultivate the body, uh, the muscles, for example, which would require you having some uh, fairly high degree of health, but you're also cultivating this 
inner energy. So you have this kind of uh, energetic body that is healthy and a, and a physical body that is healthy. Right, right. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, and another little bit on, on this the dragon slayer. So the, there's, yeah. of course, that archetype of the, <laughs> of the dragon, which we find in many cultures yeah. and many traditions. Yeah. And I find it interesting that you that you kind of put it into like a necessity into the path of initiation um, that yeah, yeah. dragon is that the abyss or what or is it something else what, what's the dragon for you in the, in the initiating yeah. path yeah so you have the hero who faces the, the dragon and slays the dragon in, in different mythologies in Norse mythology for example and um, yeah so what is the dragon you, if you mean in daily life um, yeah that's a good question I mean I would certainly say that the dragon is whatever you fear and uh but there's an obstacle to you going forward in some way and uh life is very weird and sometimes what you fear life just pushes you towards it and so you you in a way are better off facing it maybe with some guidance right so if you're afraid of violence, you probably should join a, a martial arts group or, or a self-defense group or something mm. like that. And, um, and in most of the mythologies, the dragon also protects some yes, object right. yeah. that once you slay the dragon, then you obtain that object, which yeah. will bring you further in whatever way. Right. right? Yeah. Well, yes, that's right. Exactly. And, um, you know, we were talking about the golden age earlier and mm. in, in Norse mythology, uh, uh, the dragon Fafnir is slaughtered. Yeah. And it's a very interesting uh, scene because the, the dragon, which was at one point a sort of human being type figure and has transformed himself into this sort of worm-like dragon. Um, uh, he guards this treasure chest of you know gold and, and among the gold is this helm of ore um, which has sort of magical power and even when the dragon is slaughtered and a piece of his uh, blood gets onto the mouth of the hero mm. the hero is able to understand the language of the birds which right there mm. tells you that this he's now transported back into the golden age as it were he has those psychic sort of powers where he he's able to connect with everything and is, is in harmony with everything and can understand nature and the birds and so on and right. the, the birds of course being symbolic of you know closer to the gods or in, in Christian terminology, mm -hmm. closer to heaven. And, um, and it's interesting because, you know, we were talking about the, the golden age and the iron age and the dragon is very much a manifestation of the iron age. And he has these iron gates, which, uh, which, um, uh, beyond which is kept this golden uh, treasure. So you have the gates of the iron age and the dragon is a, this manifest in the, manifestation of the iron age he was this human-like figure but is now transmogrified into this worm dragon thing that crawls on its belly so he's already sort of degenerated into something else and mm -hmm. then the 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 iron gates of the iron age um 
are locking in this this gold with, with, which has the, the the helm of war with this magical power so it, it's locking in the, the uh, golden age and by killing the dragon you're able to free this uh, this gold and this this symbolism right. of the golden age and again that's uh, an initiation right so yeah exactly you, you enter the gates of the 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 iron age but you unveil the uh, the golden age to you or it's unveiled to you in some way through symbolism and so on Right. Yeah. Which brings us almost, but I jump over that chapter <laughs> because I want I would like people to read the book and not we do don't give away everything. But we come yeah. now well, there's lots into in that, the, so. absolutely so there's much more. <laughs> so um we would need about twelve or fifteen hours to talk yeah. to get it all. But um the third archetype then, the magician. So yeah. most people who 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 not most people, maybe I'm exaggerating, but people mm. who who have an easy idea of magic say, Okay, I'm gonna learn magic. No, here <laughs> the magician comes at the end of a long path, or yeah. maybe not the end, but it's it's a kind of it's a kind of of inner order, even right. So yeah, that's again right. now your your definition of the third archetype, the magician. Right. So, well, to give you some overview of the, the magician, obviously there, uh, I do look at modern magic and mm -hmm. the history of magic. And so, you know, I do look at Alistair Crowley, I look at Eliphas Levy, um, I look at uh, more modern uh, magical movements such as Chaos mm -hmm. Magic and Austin Spare as well. But um, what I'm sort of focusing on is um, this division between in man of the higher self and the lower self and also the anima and the animus or the male and female and the unification of male and female and the transcending of the lower self and embodying uh, or going towards and embodying this higher self within each of us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and um, is it is obtaining that third step coming into that third archetype is yeah. that the is that the finality or is it just uh, another step and then you have to do something else to to yeah to maintain yeah so i would say it's it's another step but mm -hmm. um you know, there's a, a late samurai manual called the Hagokura, which is quite a, a violent manual in parts, but um, it makes this interesting point. It says that um, when you, if you, if you practice a way, which is you know the the do or the dao, uh, so you have karate do, the way of the empty hand. Uh, kendo, the way of the sword, chado, the way of tea, the tea ceremony, uh, mm -hmm. and so on. So do means the sort of a practice in which you learn not only the practice and get better at it, but you perceive something beyond the material world. Uh, right. You perceive the primordial Tao, the primordial way of all things. Well, the Hagakura says when you when you practice a way and you look at another way which is different to yours, you should be able to understand your way even more. So if you practice kendo, the way of the sword, and then you um, and then you participate in a tea ceremony, chado, uh, then you should be able to see something in that ceremony or something in this other way that can tell you something about your own art. And to, to use a, a clearer example, perhaps, uh, if you compare, say, uh, kendo and brush painting in Japanese society, uh, 
both the swordsman and the painter would move uh, the arm in a certain way while exhaling so with the stroke and so there is this definite connection between the two and um so Miyamoto Musashi, Japan's most famous samurai, uh, famous for being a warrior, but also famous in Japan, not so much in the West, famous mm-hmm. in Japan for his uh, landscape gardening, uh, painting and calligraphy, because these were all ways uh, that he was practicing. And you find in uh, ancient, uh, ancient societies, uh, classical societies, the emphasis in, in education is on a holistic ed- education. It's not mm-hmm. emphasizing as in modern Western society. You have to find a niche or a niche within a niche. Don't mm-hmm. worry about getting a broad general knowledge. Just focus on one tiny little thing. Uh, in classical and ancient society, it's the idea that you develop your whole self. So, you know, even let's say in Confucian society, uh, ancient Chinese society, um, in Confucian uh, education, uh, you will learn uh, ritual, philosophy, calligraphy, uh, music, and uh, say uh, archery. So you learn uh, archery is not just for fun, of course, it's also a, a, a strategy and a, and a sure. technique and a tool of war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it covers this range. And again, in, uh, in ancient Greece, Plato said that you have to learn philosophy, music, and um, wrestling, which again would relate directly relate to the craftsman, warrior, and magician. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and then even if you look at classical Western education, which was you know really the the heart of Western education up until fairly recently, and that was the Severn Liberal Arts, and you find there that you you, uh, you would learn say. Uh, geometry, music, uh, rhetoric, uh, dialectic. And so you have this this range of subjects. So you're learning how to think and how to speak, but also uh, music, uh, which you know could relate to rhythm as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, learning geometry, spatial awareness. And outside of that, but integral to the education, at least of every gentleman, quote unquote, uh, would be uh, to learn the sword and to learn some kind of uh, boxing or something like that. So you learn these peaceful arts, but you also learn these martial arts as well. And you find that across the globe. So yes, um, you know, on the one hand, I'm saying you want to learn these sort of spiritual, um, the world of the magician. But uh, I think what I'm saying different to everyone else is that you don't want to just become this person within a niche the way the modern world encourages us, that you want to develop all parts of you, your mind, body, and spirit. And um, this promotion of this sort of niche idea, even within the world of spirituality, is a modern idea that is actually incredibly anti-spiritual. And I've already yeah, mentioned, yeah. yeah, and I mentioned Miyamoto Masashi, uh, Plato, um, but you, you also find this even within the occult world of the, of the say of the modern early modern occult world the early modern occult pioneers very much reflected plato and miyamoto masashi you take alistair crowley for example i know he's the most controversial occultist of the modern age probably mm. but crowley you know he practiced boxing when he was at right. a university so boxing mountaineering mountaineering very yeah. Well, very yeah. very good so yeah yeah that's uh, right yeah, yeah. accomplished mountaineer 
he practiced uh, painting. He was a an accomplished painter right. in in Germany, uh, in particular. A poet. A poet, exactly. Uh, he wrote novels, um, so he he covered this this spectrum, which you would you would um, uh, find um, uh, really being heralded in ancient and classical society. That that's, that's what, what you call the Renaissance man. The Renaissance man, yeah, right, that's right, that's right. right. And, and not just Crowley, you know, uh, many of the members of the Golden Dawn yeah, were involved yeah. in the theatre. Uh, w. B. Uh, Yeats was. Um, uh, the, the poet laureate of Ireland, and they were all involved with you know the arts in some way, not just the arts, but uh, you know other things as well. And uh, Rudolf Steiner, as you know, uh, of course, he, yeah. So he, uh, he uh, he's more famous in Austria, of course, but uh, he was a. Uh, you know, he was involved with the Theosophical Society and the uh, ancient primitive, uh, ancient rite of Memphis and Misraim. And, um, you know, is, is really one of the pioneers of his own spiritual school of anthropos mm -hmm. anthroposophy. Um, but uh, he also was, he was also an architect to some degree. I believe he did painting as well. Uh, he 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 founded his own education system, uh, the Wardoff system, and you can find schools all around the world of, um, or at least all around Europe and America, of his, of the school system that he founded. And he also founded uh, bio the biodynamics uh, method of farming as well. So. Absolutely, and it's always three per tight. It's always a triad mm. of things in in his in also in his um, uh, worldview. Let's put it that mm. way. You have always. I think if you could do an in-depth study that Steiner would very much relate to those three archetypes, yeah, yeah. like you mentioned yeah. them as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and and it is, you know it's interesting you should say that because I didn't actually know that about Steiner, but these archetypes do kind of return in different ways, mm -hmm. and it, and that would make sense, right? If if these really are the very basis of, of human civilization, then you would expect them to keep reoccurring and um, uh, not to invoke Freemasonry too often. But a few years ago, uh, William D. Moore, who was the uh, the, the, the chancellor of the, oh, who was the uh, director of the Chancellor Robert R. Livingston Library of the Grand Lodge of New York, very long title. Mm -hmm. Uh, he was not a Freemason. And I don't believe he knew about the ancient structure of society or this idea that it was structured by the craftsman, warrior, and magician. Mm -hmm. But he made this claim that the uh, the American Freemasonry had embodied, uh, embodied the craftsman in the craft Masonic Lodge, or the Blue Lodge, as it's sometimes mm -hmm. called, entered apprentice, fellow craft, and master mason. And then the York Rite with the uh, Knights Templar degree and so on. He said mm -hmm. that that represents the holy warrior. And then right. the Scottish Rite, where you have the Rose Quasar, that, that represents the magician. <laughs> and, uh, and even though I don't think he knew about these ancient structure, I think it was purely intuitive. Uh, nevertheless, he saw in this modern, um, this modern society, really, and we're talking about American Freemasonry in the 20th century at that point, maybe 21st century slightly. But uh, it's, it's making the claim that it embodies these ancient archetypes. And again, you know, uh, Plato seems to suggest the same thing. And, yeah, and we find yeah. it in these early pioneers of, uh, of, the, of the modern occult movement that they very much have these the warrior, craftsman, uh, magician elements. It's not just uh, one thing. And that's why they were, you know, we'll love them, we'll hate them, uh, like them or not. You cannot deny that these people were, in their own way, absolutely brilliant uh, absolutely, geniuses, yeah. really, in absolutely. many cases. Uh, and, and, and you could not find uh, the likes of these people outside of the occult world. And they seem to have 
maybe intuitively grasp that it was it's not just magic it's also these other things much more magic magic is not or let's say spirituality it's not just doing the spiritual stuff it's also the the other archetypes the craftsman and the warrior it's the body and it's the the practical application of of doing things with your hands and of Mm -hmm. developing something otherwise you get light-headed and that might be dangerous yeah 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 but still you have to tell me a few words about gnostic initiation because that's the type of initiation that you mentioned in that third part of the magician so could you just quickly define that a little bit yeah so gnostic initiation uh, as you know gnostic or gnosis Mm. is referring to knowledge but we have 150 interpretations of gnosticism don't we yeah and i'm not talking about uh the modern gnostic church or even the ancient gnostic church i'm talking purely about uh right. knowledge of the divine right. that's it right and right. um so it is related to what we've been talking about it's this uh, we're sort of peeling back yeah. the iron age the kali yuga and we're looking into the uh into the uh, uh the golden age but and and uh, some of the themes i uh, talk about in, in one chapter will return so i do talk again about these these uh, yugas and ages and also in, related to this this descend in the Kabbalah where you you start Keta this 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 sphere that is uh sort of more essentially close to the to the original and then and then filters down into Malkut the material world uh which which again you find very much reflected in uh, Islamic Neoplatonism uh the Islamic Neoplatonists had an almost identical idea um although it should be said you know I talk about the Kabbalah in its two different forms the uh uh, the Yusha Kabbalah, which is the tree of life, and then the Igulim Kabbalah, which is a different conception. It's equally mm-hmm. old, but it's this conception that instead of manifesting in this way like a tree, it manifested in this sphere. And the, the light came through the, the void of Ein Sof and spread outwards into a sphere. And then it sort of manifested different worlds within it. So you have Keter on the outside and then closest to the center, uh, you have Malkut. But in uh, in uh, Islamic Neoplatonism as well, you have very much the same idea. There's, there's Allah, which is perfect in itself, and you can't really describe it because it's beyond description, perfect and complete. And then you, an intelligence manifests out of it, and then from this manifest, uh, this intelligence, you get these other intellects manifesting. And each intellect is uh, responsible for a different planet or angels and so on. And then at the very end, it creates this conditions for human consciousness consciousness and then you get the human being but uh, so you have this idea of manifestation and in, in the magician we, we want to go sort of uh, you know up from uh, Malkut to uh, to uh, you know to the to the golden age to, to, to embodying it in some way yeah. not just remembering it but now we want to embody it and um, there are you know maybe different ways of doing that but one of the things I look at is uh, tantra and sex magic this this mm-hmm. idea that the, the we're in some way that we're divided within ourselves and within um uh, inside of us and outside of us and so one thing we have is the the higher self and the lower self so we want to go towards the higher self and embody that but we're incomplete so we also try to complete ourselves by unifying or uniting with another being that is opposite or complementary to us and becoming one like this uh, mm-hmm. as well. 
And and as you say in the very last chapter of mm. the book, it's that all comes to the question then of balancing those three archetypes yeah, in right. yourself to be that complete yeah. person, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's exactly right. So it's right. not purely a path, it no. is learning like an extra... Uh, an extra it's like it's, it's like more like a ball which becomes bigger and bigger and if you add a, a layer yeah. it becomes more complete but it's needed to to maintain what is underneath right yeah basically and you know going back to the haga Kur, this idea if you if you practice a way and you look at another way you should understand your way even more so mm. you know if you practice magic and you study the martial arts then you'll know more about your spiritual practices or if right. you or if you practice um, spirituality and you take up uh, an art let's say painting or something you will know more about spirituality by doing that in some way you'll have some new grasp of it and if you practice all three uh, now you're beginning to have something that's really complete and i would say actually it, it's really what magic is about if you look at these early pioneers of uh, you know early modern magic crowley steiner and so on Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Angel, that was a fascinating talk. Thank you so much. And I really hope that uh, it also uh, would initiate people to get your book and, yeah, and, and, yeah. and read on and read further because I think it's really yeah. worth it and great book that you wrote here. Thank and you. Thank, thank you. you for that lovely talk that we had. And um, I wish you all the best of luck for all your future plans and do keep us informed about your new plans and books and whatever will be Thank out you. there. And I hope we will once again meet on the Thought Hermit podcast to maybe present another book or yeah. some other project that you're Yeah, in. definitely. Thank you very much. It's been great. Well, thank you, Angel. Bye now. Bye for now.
Warrior by composer Philip Lakowitz. Thank you, Angel, for this very interesting talk and for the time we were able to spend in your company. I hope, folks, that you all enjoyed our discussion and that we were able to give you some deeper insight in what initiatic spirituality is or should be. With this, we will come to the end of this episode. Thank you all for having been with us today. I hope that I will also see you again in a week from now on episode 8 of the Sothermis podcast season 4. And the next episode will be our February edition of Ex Libris. As always, I'm going to present to you four interesting books that you should not want to miss. Also, as usual, one of those books will be presented through a 20-minute interview with the author himself. And this time we'll have somebody else who returns on this podcast. The incredible and incomparable Lon Milo Duquette will talk to me about his latest published work. I'm sure this is something you are not going to want to miss. Thank you again for having been with me today. For now, I will only tell you, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.